Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy you can join me and my NBC cohort, Paul Burmeister, after an action-packed week one that ended with one of the best Monday night football games in memory, or at least one of the most dramatic Monday night football games in memory. Uh, we will break that down. Paul Burmeister uh, will break it down with me uh, in a matter of moments. Uh, our guest later on in the podcast will be Rob Domofsky of ESPN.com. You know Rob Domofsky. You may know him as Bob Domofsky. He's the guy who Aaron Rodgers loves to play around with in press conferences and post-game settings, but he is uh, one of the premier beat guys in the country. We will have him to try to dissect the 35-point debacle loss of the Green Bay Packers against the New Orleans Saints in Jacksonville in week one. Packers playing a really interesting Monday night game against the Detroit Lions in week two. But Paul, welcome. And uh, wow, there was so much going on in week one. What really stuck out to you? Uh, before we get into Raiders Ravens a little bit, what really stuck out to you in week one? Having the fans back really stood out. And I was a little tipped off to how much that would bring calling the, the uh, Notre Dame games on the radio and being in the stadium where we're all comparing to what we felt last year and having the energy of the fans there was just outstanding. I think we all felt it watching from home as well. And then just the way it started, Peter, on Thursday night and the way it ended, those common themes of drama and excitement and a lot of points and really good quarterback play starting in Tampa Thursday night and ending last night uh, or Monday night in Vegas. That's what stood out to me, what the crowd brought and exciting drama Great quarterback play from Thursday through Monday night. I think so, too. And what, what I found really interesting, honestly, overall, is the great quarterback play from the young quarterbacks. You know, if you looked at, with the exception, I think, of Trevor Lawrence, ironically, the first pick in the draft, the other young quarterbacks, Trey Lance in a cameo, Zach Wilson, particularly in the second half for the Jets, uh, Mac Jones, I thought, even though they only put up 16 points against Miami, I thought Mac Jones played overall the best game of any of the young quarterbacks and obviously a cameo from Justin Fields. But that, that there are so many right now. I mean, I wrote my column. There's basically 11 
quarterbacks, 25 and younger, right now starting in the NFL. A third of the quarterbacks in the NFL right now who are playing are young and they are the next level. It's funny, when you do the average age of quarterbacks, Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger kind of push it up a little bit. But, you know, the median age, you know, is I think 26 years and, and nine months or something like that. Uh, so this is, this is really an interesting time in NFL history with the young quarterbacks. You know, Paul, we got a lot to get to, and I really want to start with the Monday night game. Uh, just give me your very quick observation or two about the Monday night game, and, and I'll, I'll give you, I'll follow that with mine. Very good, Peter. I think I'll hit one from each team, and let's begin with the winning team, the Raiders. And I guess I'll have a couple here with the Raiders. Number one, it was great to see Derek Carr have that kind of performance, that kind of numbers. We, we often look back at his box score after a game and say, boy, you know, Raiders quarterback played pretty well, but they don't get it done in the end. And the, the giant numbers that he had, you can attach to really good decisions, athletic type of throws, when the game mattered the most, that led to a Raiders win. So that's number one for the Raiders. Two for the Raiders. The defense, I know, wasn't great, but this has been the worst defense in the most important category, scoring defense, the, the last three years. They made a play down the stretch that led to that overtime win. So encouragement for the defense, for the Raiders, and not empty big numbers for Derek Carr stands out there. And for the Ravens, even though there's a lot of disappointment with that loss, I think that they, they ran the ball just fine. And that was the giant worry coming in with those injuries to the top two backs what would the running game look like? They almost piled up 200 yards. And by their standards, that's not what they're looking for. But it was pretty darn good considering the situation. So I take away that the ground game is not a disaster in Baltimore, that it's actually okay. And that's something to build on. Yeah, I'll go counter to a couple of your, of your points. Number one, uh, right I'd say for maybe the first 50 minutes of the game, maybe even a little bit longer than that, I had a real problem with the Raider passing game. I thought they were very, very myopic. Uh, they targeted Darren Waller 19 times. And although the numbers look fine, 10 receptions, 105 yards. I mean, you throw to somebody 19 times, he better get 100 yards. Uh, and And it bothered me that some of the guys who they really wanted to feature. I mean, Henry Ruggs, uh, two catches, 46 yards. I, I mean, Henry Ruggs, and, and again, look, you don't want to overreact out of, uh, off week one, and so I won't. But Henry Ruggs simply got to be a bigger part of this offense if he's going to justify being the first wide receiver picked in a receiver-rich draft in 2020. On the other side... I I just think that watching this game intently, uh, I was disappointed in Lamar Jackson because Lamar Jackson basically fumbled three times, lost two of them. Uh, he was inaccurate at important times. Uh, and, and again, look, I'm not blaming him for sacks uh, because their line was was pretty rough. But what I would say is that I think your franchise quarterback has to play better. He can't turn it over like that. And, and to me, when I look at a guy who 
is really trying to lift his team on the road, especially with a game against the Kansas City Chiefs coming up in week two. Lamar Jackson just has to be better. Listen, he has he has certainly passed with flying colors the, the first test of his career. He's had an MVP season. He's been the, the leader of a team that's been one of the top two or three in the NFL. But now moving forward, it's like, okay, nice job. You're a really good quarterback. This is a really good team. The evaluation of him is based off of, can I picture you being the best quarterback in the month of January? Can I picture this team winning, led by the passing attack when it has to, when the game commands that, in February? Those are super high standards, but that's what they've set up for themselves in Baltimore. And by those standards, I agree. Lamar Jackson was disappointing last night. He was fine most of the time. He made big plays running. He certainly made a decent amount of big plays passing. But when you evaluate him based off the bottom line, what you're looking for from him and that offense for a team that can they be the best team in the NFL, that was a failure last night by what they're expected to do in that city. You know, looking ahead to them playing Kansas City, I think two things really stick out to me. Number one, you play a long, physical, overtime game on Monday night. Now you have to go back. They probably landed in Maryland at 6.30 on Tuesday morning. Um, you know, someday off, the guys are just going to go home and basically collapse uh, and, and, and take the day off. But then they've got to come back and play maybe the best team in football uh, on, a, on a short week. So that is going to be tough. That'll be one thing, the fatigue factor in what you're looking for. Number two, I think the other thing is, Paul, you know, you were a quarterback, obviously, at Iowa. You understand the importance of a defense being able to get pressure with your regular people up front. And in this particular game, the Baltimore Ravens really had to bring extra players to get pressure. And in this game, it's almost pick your poison when you play Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, you can blitz, and you could even get home once in a while. No question about it. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers did that in the Super Bowl. It will worry me if they consistently have, have to bring, say, Patrick Queen or maybe a safety coming down to try to generate the kind of pressure to take Patrick Mahomes off his game. So, you know, to me, they... They really need to concentrate with their front on beating an inexperienced Kansas City line that struggled some in the first game. You know, Orlando Brown gave up five significant pressures in his first game at left tackle. The Ravens have to see if they can take advantage of that with a regular rush. I think it's a really timely point with that game they have coming up too, Peter, the fact that they need to bring extra people to get pressure because... The Chiefs, and let's forget about Patrick Mahomes for a second, just their, their passing weapons. They have two that command double-team consideration. If you're not going to do it on every single play, you at least have to think about it. They have two really where a lot of people have none. Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill both command the kind of thought from a defense like, maybe we should have a safety over the top of this person. Maybe we should put our best person on this player the entire time and then put a couple on the other guy. I mean, no matter who you label their number one or who you, who you label their other guy, that's your number one worry. So I, I think it comes into focus against their next opponent as much as it does against anybody else they'll play the rest of the season.
No question about that. I thought one of the other things that happened last night that was interesting. Look, the first half of the game, mostly, I watched ESPN. I watched Steve Levy and, and Lewis Riddick and Brian Greasy. But the second half, I turned on ESPN, too, and watched the Manning brothers with a succession of guests. And I, I don't know, Paul, I, I, thought, I thought that was a home run. And because I didn't see much of the first half and then saw a couple of things uh, on social media, you, you know, Peyton Manning does not have to be Frank Caliendo Jr. Uh, to be really good on TV. And I think in the first half, he was trying some sticky things, not saying they're not funny, but I think people are turning in not to see uh, a comedian, but they're in there to see some light, interesting football analysis. And that's what they got in the second half. Funny stories along with it, but some really good football analysis. Uh, honestly, I don't know how ESPN, which had scheduled Peyton and Eli Manning for 10 of these, come and sit with us and watch the game and you'll have fun doing it. Uh, they had scheduled 10 of these for their Monday night package. I, I don't know how they're not going to do that. I mean, I, I don't want to use triple negatives, but they need to do that every week. I think it was very, very entertaining and will draw, in my opinion, more viewers uh, into that game than would normally uh, watch that game. I agree, Peter. I, was, I had high expectations, and I was pleasantly surprised. I had my in-laws in town last night, and they were in another room, and I went in to watch the Peyton and Eli broadcast, and my wife came in, and she's like, are you, are you going to do this the entire night? And I didn't know if she meant watch the other broadcast or ignore the family that's in the other room. Uh, so I ended up not doing quite as much of either uh, as, as I truly wanted. But what really stood out to me, and I, I agree, Peter, that there were moments where maybe there was some forced humor, but there's always going to be some levity and some, some inside jokes and leaning on humor when Peyton's around. Even when he was doing that, maybe a little bit too much, he, he was adding some pretty good insight, like talking about third down and 10. I think it was in the first half. He's like, this is when, don't throw it to 10 or 11 yards, throw it to 20, throw it to 40, do something the defense isn't expecting. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's a really good point. And it was just like having a podcast with two people who get along really well and have, I mean, outstanding quarterback insight going on during the game. And I thought Eli was really, really good with that same Eli look on his face that we used to see on the sideline all the time. He had excellent insight as well. And I always watch, part of my entertainment is enjoying what the play-by-play -play person is doing and paying close attention. I had to push that aside and say, okay, I'm not going to get what I normally get out of that. But the podcast aspect with the quarterback insight was even better than I thought it was going to be. And I'm with you I wish it was going to be around every single Monday night game. Who knows? It may be. We'll see. But I think the calls will come in uh, from ESPN executives who are going to watch. You know, they measure social media. And last night when I was on social media, it was as much about Peyton and Eli as it was about every aspect of a bizarre, weird, incredible football game, uh, but a very, very compelling game. So I, I would expect that whether Eli and Peyton will do it, that ESPN will try to lean on them to do it. Paul, let's go to one other topic before we, we just uh, do a, a bunch of very quick hits around the NFL. 
You know, I, I was really curious. I, I thought the game that blew me away in week one was New Orleans 38, Green Bay 3. Obviously, you look at it from the Green Bay standpoint and you see, I, I don't know what the right word is to say, but for some reason, flippant comes to mind when I watch the reaction of the Packers to getting their rear ends kicked. Worse than an Aaron Rodgers team has ever gotten beat. And and I I was I was blown away by that that and also surprised by they had almost a shoulder shrugging reaction to it, at least from what we could see on camera. That bugged me a little bit. At some point, you know, as leaders of that team, don't you have to take your teammates by the throat and just say, we're not going down like this? And again, I don't mean to say that Aaron Rodgers has to be Tom Brady and or, or, or whoever, but that really surprised me. And then the other part that surprised me, obviously, was the incredible presence uh, and and sort of patience and decision making of a guy who we have known as the most intercepted passer in the NFL since 2015, since he was a rookie. But Jameis Winston, I thought, was really incredible in this game. I wasn't wholly surprised at how well Jameis Winston played. I mean, I, I like you, Peter, and everybody else didn't expect him to be in such an advantageous situation the, the entire time with the team up by so many points and the other team playing so poorly. But if you look at it this way, I mean, Jameis Winston, yes, he was an interception and turnover machine that last season when he hit 30. But going back and looking at his production or lack thereof in Tampa Bay the previous four seasons – his interception level was in the teens and oftentimes in the low teens. So he was prone to, to risk taking. He wasn't the, the again, the, the turnover machine that he was that last season. And then, it, then if you take it a step further and look at what Drew Brees did when he was really pushing the ball downfield that first decade in New Orleans with Sean Payton, he hit the mid-teens and interceptions all the time. Now, he was also close to 70% and throwing a crazy amount of touchdowns. But it's not like Sean Payton can't win in New Orleans, looking at his history, with a quarterback who's going to throw somewhere between 10 and 15 interceptions a season. Drew Brees did it, and they won at a giant level. So I wasn't that surprised that Jameis played well after taking a year off and learning under Drew Brees. And I think this team can win with him if he does throw more interceptions than other quarterbacks, as long as he keeps it you know, south of that 20 number. Yeah, the other thing I think that Jameis Winston has done and talking to both him and Sean Payton after the game, I think he knows now at least there are signs that he knows now. And again, you don't want to overreact to one game, and I won't because I can't tell you whether Jameis Winston is over the turnover bug. We'll see. But the reason that I thought it was such a good sign in the first game is when I asked him what his favorite play of the game was. What's the play in this game that you threw when you threw five touchdowns? What's the one throw you made that you'll remember out of this game? And he said uh, it was a throwaway late in the first quarter. And nobody will remember the play. I had to go back and, and look at it. Matt Casey, um, our poobah at NBC, ended up uh, basically clipping it off and sending me so I could look at it because I did not have the game recorded when I was writing Sunday night. I don't have the game pass available yet. So I needed Matt to 
clip off this play, but it's a play late in the first quarter where Jameis Winston goes back. He looks to the left. He obviously wants to throw a wheel route to Alvin Kamara coming out of the backfield. Kamara is covered right away by a linebacker. He might be able to get the ball in, but the linebacker's kind of laying in wait there. And if Winston makes the throw, he's got a, you know, a clear path down the sideline to return it for a touchdown. Then Jameis looks downfield, okay, but then he comes back and he throws the ball six feet over Kamara's head. And so it was just a regular throwaway. You see it all the time in the NFL. And the reason why Jameis Winston liked that is that the other day they ran this play in practice. Winston threw an interception to one of his own linebackers. And he was determined, as he said to me later, that I'm going to, if that happens in the game and this guy is covered, I'm going to throw the ball so high that Shaq couldn't pick it off. And so that's exactly what he did in the game. So count that as a lesson learned by Jameis Winston. Will he remember that lesson for 16 games, for 15 more games? We'll see. But I thought it was a really encouraging sign in week one. I love that word that you used there twice there at the end there, Peter, in lesson. And I think what, what Jameis told you, if I remember correctly from reading your article Monday, is that one of the lessons he learned from Drew Brees is that it's decisions over results and it's the decision making that matters the most and it really made me think and like and, and I, I like to compare things to what we know best so we're, we're in the media business here peter what if you got to go cover the Bengals as a beat reporter as you did when you were a kid in this business for five or six years and then go back to the number one media school in the country and get a phd think about how much more you would have learned in, in your mid to late 20s and how you would have absorbed all those great lessons after you had all that re real experience in the professional world of doing it well sometimes, not doing it so well the other times. And that's basically what Jameis Winston got last year in New Orleans, 70 some starts in the NFL, a lot of good, a lot of bad. Let's go sit in the sideline and let's learn from Sean Payton and Drew Brees. And I think he was able to take in all of those things that one could potentially learn because he had so much experience in the league. So I'm, I'm excited for this opportunity just as a former quarterback standpoint, but it would make sense to me if he's a lot better this year because he was able to take that experience and learn from one of the best. Agree, totally. We need to do some quick hits around the league now, Paul. And I gotcha. let's sort of bop back and forth on a few things that really stood out to both of us after week one. Um, one of them is going to be a, a bit of a look ahead, too. I want to hear your thoughts on the New York Giants. To me, the Giants, seven of the last eight years, they've started 0-2. And they go to Washington. And you say, well, you know, the good news is that they play Taylor Heineke. I'm not sure that that's good news. Taylor Heineke uh, went head-to-head -head with Tom Brady and played a very competitive wildcard playoff game when nobody had ever heard of them last January. So, but, but anyway, it's a short week. They don't have a fully healthy in the groove Saquon Barkley. Their receivers are still not fully healthy. Kadarius Tony, particularly, uh, their offensive line played pretty well on Sunday. I thought against the Denver Broncos, not great, but pretty well, but this is a team that desperately needs to get off the schneid. It's the losingest team along with the New York Jets in the last four years in the NFL. Wow. 
and yet I don't see a lot of great and positive signs going into Washington on Thursday. I didn't know they'd been that bad the last four years, Peter. I knew last year offensively they were 31st in the league in the stat that matters the most, and that's, that's scoring points. Uh, here's what stood out to me, Peter. Everything was supposed to be better offensively for really logic, logical reasons. I mean, they have continuity back on the staff with Jason Garibank. Say what you will about Jason. It matters when a quarterback and his play caller are together for seasons on end. They upgraded at the skill position. Saquon was supposed to be healthier. I know not his best yet, but he didn't really add anything. And Daniel Jones had another key turnover. So for all the expectations of things that should have been a giant step forward, was equal to or maybe even lesser than last year. So I, I think the, the disappointment level for all the things that should have moved forward really stands out to me for how the Giants lost that game. One of the other teams in week one that really impressed me for a lot of different reasons is the Houston Texans. Now you can say, hey, it's just beating Jacksonville. Who cares? The Texans dominated an NFL game with what I consider to be nearly an expansion team roster. And so my, my whole thing about watching a bunch of that Houston game is you say whatever you want about how bad Jacksonville is and they look pretty bad. But I mean, I think that what, what I had not really expected is that Tyrod Taylor played very well, very efficiently. And David Culley had this team ready to play. David Culley was my coach of the week this week because I just thought with all the mayhem around this team, with the Deshaun Watson shadow being cast over this team, I just thought it was an amazing job by Houston to get ready for this game and to not allow all the outside forces to ruin their season. I think another thing when you look at that win, all under the thought, Peter, of how did Houston not only win, but how do they win and make it look easy, winning by double digits, they have some real pros, some quality veterans at some really important spots. Uh, Tyrod Taylor has a nice resume in this league. I mean, he didn't have a lot of teams lining up to make him their franchise quarterback, and Houston certainly got there by default. But this is someone, if he's your backup quarterback, you feel great about it, and you have confidence that he's going to have a lot of good games if he is the starter. And then at receiver, there's Cooks. At running back, there's Ingram. So there's just, afterward, looking at it, there are more quality veterans, some real pros who've done well in this league on that side, as opposed to Jacksonville, where there's just a lot of excitement and potential. And I'm keeping it in the AFC, Peter. There's so many reasons to feel good about what Pittsburgh did in that win against Buffalo. Um, when you look at phases of the game and individuals for the Steelers who stood up and raised their hand and said, I'm going to make a difference in this huge win, who comes to mind? The thing that really stuck out to me, and I ended up speaking to him for a few minutes after the game, what stuck out to me was Deontay Johnson. Now, remember, Deontay Johnson last year, when the Pittsburgh Steelers went to Buffalo, dropped two passes in the first quarter. He had 14 drops for the season, led everybody in the NFL, and he got benched for the rest of the first half. Mike Tomlin was just sick of his drops, and he worked on that a lot in the offseason. Uh, he got one of the assistant equipment managers to go out before and after every practice and during training camp. And now he's continuing into the season, working on different drills, not only with the jugs machine, but in catching tennis balls one-handed. And if you see this, if you see his touchdown in this game, 
He's closely covered in the left corner of the end zone. And the Steelers need this play. They need this score to make their offense come alive. Levi Wallace tips the ball. And at that moment, instead of just sort of giving up on the ball, you could see that Deontay Johnson extended both arms and somehow, someway came up with the ball and dragged one foot to make sure that he stayed in bounds. To me, it was one of the great plays of week one of this season. And it was made by a guy who spent all of last year in the doghouse because of all his drops. And going a little more macro on that win, Peter. And I, I know I spent a lot of time around college football and I don't want to make this too collegiate, but that was a, a meaningful type of win for the Steelers, not just getting off to one and no star, but many people, the, the, the big bad Steelers picking Pittsburgh to finish bottom half of the AFC North. You go to the team that's a very popular pick for very good reason to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl, and you come from behind and do that with that kind of second half. I mean, that's that's not your ordinary win. I know these are grown-ups, these are professionals who are paid to win every Sunday, but I have to think that they walk back into that facility this week with a different kind of feel, different kind of confidence than a lot of the other teams who are also one to know. Agreed totally. And and it was really an interesting week for the AFC North. The Bengals with an unlikely win over the Vikings. Uh, and you know what really stuck out to me is look, Cleveland is a very good team. Cleveland is a top 10 team in the NFL right now. But in the last 12 minutes of their game against the Kansas City Chiefs, they went from maybe not controlling the game total, but but you know, being in the lead and having a good chance to win. And then two plays happen. The punter drops uh, an incredibly easy snap to him, a perfect snap. He drops it, ends up getting snowed under. Kevin Stefanski, the coach, said, hey, he should have still tried to punt the ball when he picked it up. And on replay, I went back and looked at it, and I said, yeah, he probably should have that happens and then an unfortunate interception for baker mayfield that wasn't entirely his fault but he threw it he's got to take responsibility for it uh so those two plays cleveland at the end of this game was not ready for prime time but i still like the browns out of this game hey peter in the first half my super bowl pick looked pretty good i was feeling like i think the steelers feel this week walking into their facility i'm like I can do this. I can make a good Super Bowl prediction. Then the second half happened with those mistakes. Uh, here's what stands out to me about Cleveland Baker Mayfield right now. A little while ago, I talked about Lamar Jackson and how he's being held to a very high standard that he created for himself with his own individual success and the team success that he's only going to have a good season if you can picture him and if he does succeed in January and even February. It's been a much more accelerated track for Baker Mayfield in Cleveland these last few months, but if they can't win at Kansas City, then this season is going to be kind of a failure for them based off the expectations. So they were wonderful for most of the game, first half especially. Uh, but when it came down to their ultimate litmus test, can you win in Arrowhead? Can Baker Mayfield get the best of, of Patrick Mahomes? The answer, it's harsh, but the answer is no. And that's why that team you know, still has a ways to go because they're trying to beat the very best team in the AFC. Paul, appreciate your, your help this week, breaking down week one. We will be back to do it again next week uh, with week two.
But now I'm going to go to my guest for this week, uh, Rob Domofsky of ESPN.com, covers the Green Bay Packers. Much to talk about with Rob Domofsky. Now back with a proud 1993 graduate of Ohio University, only the greatest school in the United States of America. I bring on Rob Domofsky of ESPN.com, does a great job covering the Packers, has some lively and friendly banter with America's favorite quarterback, uh, Aaron Rodgers. And uh, Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Peter, it's great to be here. I'm uh, happy to do it. Good. So um, I obviously wanted to bring you on to talk mostly about the most stunning result of week one of this season and to look ahead to see what it means going ahead, go, going into the future. But how much were you surprised by New Orleans 38, Green Bay 3? Shocked. To be honest, I wrote today it was the most maybe the most surprising season opener in recent Packers history, at least in the 25 years that I've covered the team, it was. And, you know, look, they have a new defensive coordinator. Is it surprising that the Saints put up some points on them? No. But the three part of it was an absolute stunner, especially considering Rodgers, I know he didn't play in the preseason, but he really did look sharp in practice. I think the day you were there, can't remember if he had the day off that day. I think he might have. He had the day but, off that day, yeah. Yeah, he. but I'm telling you, he was so sharp uh, day in, day out in training camp. And, and that's, to be honest, the most surprising part of this is just what happened from being in rhythm with Devontae Adams, with Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Robert Tunyon, to basically completely out of rhythm. You know, Look, Rob, you know this team 48 times better than I know this team. But I'll tell you what surprised me when I watched this game. It was almost a shoulder-shrugging reaction from the Packers, at least as caught by the cameras, uh, that there was no ire, there was no fury. Uh, nobody seemed to stand up and take the team by the throat and say, we're not going down this way. I realize that's a bit of a cliche and that's not the kind of person Aaron Rodgers is. I get it. But do you draw any conclusion whatsoever from the almost, whether it be flip or, or borderline passive way that they accepted this game? I think you're certainly accurate in the way that their response looked. I thought Rogers in his post-game press conference was sort of, you know, it happens kind of a thing. Uh, it's one week, you know, Matt LaFleur came in and used the wor words like embarrassed, humbled, shocked. And we asked Rogers what his reaction was. And he said, well, Matt can use those words. I'll use this. It's only one game which I thought was a bit of a strange reaction. Yeah, I thought it was a little bit worse than that. But again, I don't think this is, this is a death knell for the Packers. I'm not in any way uncomfortable with saying that they're still the prohibitive favorite in their division. And maybe they're not the prohibitive favorite anymore to win home field in the NFC. But 
How do you see them responding against the Lions on Monday night? Well, I mean, let's face it. The Lions are probably the perfect opponent for them, you know, after what happened in uh, Jacksonville against the Saints. Because, look, the Lions are in a pretty much a rebuild, new coach, new quarterback, and a team that really never wins in Green Bay. I mean, there was a stretch where I was covering them where I think it was like 21 straight that the Lions had lost in the state of Wisconsin. They finally did end that. But, you know, it's it's really the perfect bounce back. But does it really mean anything? And, and look, here in Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin Badgers fans were freaking out, you know, that the, that the Badgers lost to Penn State in the opener. They came back the next week and played Eastern Michigan and beat them. But so what? It's kind of the same thing, you know, if, if, if and when they beat the Lions, so what? You know, they've got – then they go right out to, I believe, it's San Francisco the next week. You know, that's a little bit more of a test. The thing that also, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the new defensive coordinator, Joe Barry, and, mm-hmm. and, and what happened in this game. Look, I thought Jameis Winston was able to be very comfortable in this yes. game. He was not sacked. Uh, he was not significantly pressured much at all in this game. Uh, and I wonder, is that, I mean, clearly you have, you know, Zadarius Smith is not in optimum, uh, fit of optimum fitness right now. I wonder, is there anything that is a warning sign for this defense going forward? Peter, the warning sign was in January when they hired Joe Barry, his previous track record as a defensive coordinator. Two years in Detroit, his defense has finished 32-32. Two years in Washington, his defense finished 28th, 28th. Now, you look at the talent that they had in those places, nowhere near what they have here with Zadarius Smith, with uh, Preston Smith, with Jair Alexander, you know, maybe one of the best corners in the league. They, they have a playmaker at pretty much every level. Kenny Clark, you know, one of the better nose tackles in the league. So Joe Barry certainly has a lot more talent to work with. Plus, Matt LaFleur hired him for what? One reason, because he worked with the Brandon Staley defense, which is the Vic Fangio defense. But I'll tell you what, it didn't look a whole lot different from the Dom Capers 3-4, and then the Mike Patton 3-4 after that. And, and to me, that's, you know, the, the question mark going in was, is Joe Barry going to be any better than Joe Barry was in previous places? And is he going to be any better than Capers and Patton were? And at this point, again, one game, let's not flip the panic switch. But at this point, the answer is no, no difference that we've seen. In our remaining time, Rob, let's spend a couple of minutes about, you know, on Rogers and on Rogers future. My impression after spending just a few minutes with him in August is that he is going to be open to whatever happens in the future. We'll see what happens that he hasn't made any firm decision. Who knows where he's leaning? I'm sure he has some lean but that he is going to spend this year basically with his feet on the ground where he is. He's not going to be thinking about 2022. Or, at the very least, he's not going to talk about what he's thinking about in 2022. What read do you get? You know him better uh, than almost anybody in the media right now. So what read do you get on Rodgers 
both this year and going forward? Peter, I'll take it back to a conversation I had with him in early April. It was right as his Jeopardy guest host stint was, was happening, and we spoke for about 25 minutes about that. And then for about five minutes, we sort of talked around the idea of, you know, why didn't they do anything with his contract this offseason? Why didn't they do anything with his contract when he was marching his way to another MVP last year? And when I hung up the phone with him that day, I said to myself, wow, this is going to be his last year in Green Bay. Now, about a week or two later, Adam Schefter, you know, drops his incredible report that Rodgers basically confirmed everything when he stood up there the first day of training camp and detailed all of his grievances. But I just remember hanging up the phone with Rodgers on that day in early April, just thinking to myself, this is going to be it. This is this 2021 season is it. It's, and it was more, I guess, you know, Peter, when you talk to guys, it's more how they sound rather than what exactly they say. And to me, that was the feeling I got when I got done talking to him that day is that he knows and he either A, is resigned to that or B, wants it that way. And, and I'm not sure which is exactly the way. And it may be both. It may be that he's resigned to knowing that the Packers are in a big salary cap problem next year and that Brian Gutekunst drafted Jordan Love and that he wants to turn things over. And it might be that Aaron Rodgers is ready to say, look, I saw what Tom Brady did. He basically was able to get his group together and go win a Super Bowl somewhere else. And Rodgers, you know, may want to try that as well. So it could be one, the other, or some combination of both. What interests me about Rodgers' situation is that next year, he, which I reported, you probably have reported the same thing. Next year, he has the right to request a trade and my understanding is the Packers then would have to trade him. Yep. Uh, and he will have some say, I don't know how much say, but he'll have some say as to where he can go. It's, uh, but if he, if he chooses to stay with the Packers in 2022 and to play out the final year of this contract, then he could be an unrestricted free agent in March, 2023 at the age of 39. And what's interesting about that, if that would be his choice, is that he would be an unrestricted free agent at the age of 39 without, as of right now anyway, any significant physical restrictions or limitations, apparently in fantastic shape, uh, in a different way than Brady. I don't know what his eating patterns are, but Brady obviously was an unrestricted free agent at age in his age 43 season. Um, and so I look at this and I say, Aaron Rodgers may say, hey, look, I'll hang around for two years and then I will get to pick wherever it is I want to yeah. go. That's of a great those point. two options. Yeah. yeah. Of those two options, what do you think is most likely? I still think it's most likely that this is his last year, but... I think you make a great point because look, if they trade him, yeah, they, they may have this handshake deal, which I believe that they do, that they will, you know, if he wants out after this year, they will grant it, but they're not going to trade him to an NFC team. No way. And, and I'll take it back. And you may know this story already, but in the summer of 2008, when Brett Favre, when they came to the agreement that they were going to trade him, 
Ted Thompson went to Brett and said, look, I've got a deal with Tampa and I've got a deal with the Jets. Where do you want to go? Brett said Tampa. So they sent him to the Jets. Okay. So, and Rogers knows that, right? He knows that that's going to limit, you know, where he can go. So if indeed, you know, he doesn't want to go to, we'll say Denver or Pittsburgh, if big Ben is done there and he really wants to go to, you know, the bears will just, I doubt it, but we'll say, let's, let's say he really wants to go there and stick it to these guys, just like Brett did when he went to Minnesota, then that is his only option. And that's to play it out through 2022 and, and, you know, become a free agent in which point the Packers would get what a third round compensatory pick for him. I'm guessing that they would probably rather get whatever the haul that they could get, uh, you know, next January or February, rather than just, you know, saying bye-bye for a compensatory third round pick in 2023. You mentioned two really good teams. I've, I've thought for a while, you know, pro football focus in the off season rated every 53, not, not in the, I mean, like a, maybe a, a month or so ago, uh, rated every team's full roster one to 53 in the NFL. And when they did that, the one, the one team that just jumped off the page to me is they had the Denver Broncos at 10. Now, the question is, if the Packers were to send Aaron Rodgers to Denver, you know, would, would the Broncos have to give up such, uh, such significant pieces that maybe they're not that really great team? Suppose that the Packers say, we want Jerry Judy and two ones, your yeah. next two ones. Right. Uh, or, or, or maybe or even more than that. Rushers. I don't know. Right. One of their yeah. stud passes. Yeah. So, and two or three ones. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, I, that's, but, but that is the team to me that, uh, that if I am Aaron Rodgers, I'm looking at longingly. You mentioned the Steelers. I think the Steelers would be really, really interesting. I, and, and look, I think Mike Tomlin and Aaron Rodgers, everybody said, what a weird match that would be. No, it wouldn't. Because Mike Tomlin is, in his own stern way, a malleable person. How do you deal with Antonio Brown and get the best out of him for so long when Antonio Brown was such a screw-up so often in Pittsburgh? And, yeah. and so... Mike Tomlin will have no problem dealing with an iconoclastic, uh, interesting person, you know, as, as Aaron Rodgers did. So those are the two teams I think would be a barrel of fun for him to go to. And one thing to keep in mind, Peter, everyone says, well, if you have Aaron Rodgers, you have to have an offensive head coach. And that's why the Packers hired Matt LaFleur at that stage of his career. Not so much. Second of all, if you listen to Aaron Rodgers talk week in and week out on Wednesdays when he's preparing for teams, he's always talking about the opposing defensive coordinator or if it's a defensive head coach, the opposing defensive head coach. And I'm telling you, I'm not sure there's a guy that I've heard him rave about more when preparing for his defenses than Vic Fangio. And it was the same way with, with Mike Zimmer, even going back to when they played him the few times in Cincinnati. So those defensive head coaches, you know, I think is an underrated aspect of where he could end up because he has so much respect for those guys, wants to be part of a team that has a great defense, which let's face it, 
they have not had here in Green Bay. The def- the Super Bowl season, 2010, their defense was good, but it wasn't great until the playoffs. And every one of those playoff games, they had key defensive plays right down to the Super Bowl when Clay Matthews punches that fumble out in the fourth quarter, and then they salt the game away. So those two places, you know, with those kind of defensive-minded head coaches might be a better fit than people would think. Rob, what do you think would have happened on July 1st if Sony Pictures had called Aaron Rodgers and David Dunn, his agent, and said, we want to offer Aaron a three-year contract to host Jeopardy? I think his first response would have been, how can I do this and still play football? Because I really think deep down, and he essentially has admitted this much to us in his, his time uh, that since he's been back, that ultimately his competitive juices and, you know, when he, when he talked to, you know, guys like Randall Cobb and, and Jordy Nelson and Charles Woodson, those guys that either are at toward the end of their career like Randall is or have gotten out like Jordy and, and Charles have, like, those are his really close, close friends. And he said, when I talked to those guys, man, it just, it's, you know, it, it gotten my juices going. So I think he would have tried to do both. Whether Jeopardy would have gone for it, I don't know. If Jeopardy would have said, nope, you have to make a decision. It's our podium or the Packers podium. Which one is it? Uh, I'm not sure. It's very interesting. He's just a, I mean, he's such a different guy. He's such a fascinating guy, in my opinion. Um, one last thing, America must know, how did you become Bob Domovsky? (laughs) This goes back to a couple, many years ago. I don't know if it was three, five, seven years ago at his locker where he used to do, you know, his Wednesday meeting with us before the pandemic, he mentioned something that I had written, but he said, and and kind of tongue in cheek, he reads everything. He said something like, well, and Bob wrote this, and I was thinking, Bob, Bob McGinn? Like, did he mean Bob McGinn? <laughs> and I went up to him afterwards, and I said, were you talking about McGinn or me? And he goes, nope, you, Bobby. And I, I think I probably <laughs> said, I think I probably said, man, I do, I hate being called Bob. Like, I am, my full name obviously is Robert, but I have always been a Rob. I hate being called Bob. And ever since it was the wrong thing for me to tell him, if I would have never said that, he probably would have never brought it up. And instead it has become this thing. And and there was Peter, I gotta be honest with you. There was a short time where I wasn't sure if he was doing it because he didn't like me. And at one point he came up to me a couple of years ago and said, Hey, I'll stop if you want. I'm like, no, it's fine. But yes, uh, the fans on Twitter, I think have taken it as like a, you know, whenever they want to rip me, they'll say, way to go, Bob. Like they think it's a, a negative thing. Uh, I, I certainly don't take it that way. Uh, but I will say at first, I wasn't sure if he was talking about me or, or you, you know, your good buddy, Bob McGinn, who you know very well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to end with this that I'm, I'm just so curious about because I've spent so much time in Green Bay over the years. I love the state of Wisconsin, love Spotted Cow, love Miller Park. Um, It's just, I always feel great when I go to Wisconsin. It's just, uh, it's just a cool, cool spot. But 
after that game on Sunday, my first reaction is how many people are just going absolutely bat crap crazy right now at the result of this game? What's it like in Wisconsin this week? I got back from Jacksonville at about two or three in the afternoon yesterday, uh, Monday, went right to Matt LaFleur's press conference, and then uh, went right to my, uh, my oldest son who's a junior in high school. He had a, his high school team had a fall basketball uh, league game, and every single person that I walked into said, A, what the heck happened? And B, if this is the way Rodgers is going to be and doesn't want to be here, then they, which is what they thought, they thought his play was that he looked like he didn't want to be there, then be done with them. And, and as you know, Peter, people here – are very, very provincial. And I think the tide turned a little bit against Rodgers uh, this offseason because of one thing. When, when people say that they don't want to be here, people in Wisconsin and Green Bay specifically says, well, if you don't want to be here, we don't want you. They're very protective of, of their city um, and maybe, quite frankly, a little defensive just because it is the smallest place in professional sports. Uh, but I think there is a sense that if you don't want to be here, then goodbye to you. And I did get that sense, was renewed uh, after the game. And I thought that went away when Rodgers came back and had a really good training camp. But I just think now if this continues, it's going to just keep creeping in and get back. Now, if they go on a nice run, it's probably back to normal. You know, I couldn't bear to ask it because it's so social media and I refuse to ask the question, is Aaron Rodgers doing this on purpose? Is he tanking yeah. the games? I refuse to ask the question yeah. because it's idiotic. Yeah. And so I refuse you to answer the question about whether he's tanking the games because it's so ridiculous. But anyway, Rob, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Great to have your knowledge on the podcast this week. I really enjoy your work. You're doing a great job. Thanks, Peter. It's, it's always good to talk to you, whether it's in person or, or even over the phone or Zoom. My thanks to all of you for joining us this week. My thanks especially to Paul Burmeister uh, for uh, such a thorough, good breakdown of the week one games. And my thanks to Rob Domofsky of ESPN.com. Did a really good job discussing where the Green Bay Packers are after their horrible performance in week one. We'll be back with another podcast next week, breaking down week two, looking ahead to week three next week. Appreciate you joining me. It's a really, really fun. Save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.